not pleased. And these things were written down as examples for us and for our instruction. These narratives were written down and handed down so that we might have as an example, by way of contrast, how we are not supposed to respond in the face of temptation. Paul is saying when you're alone, and the, 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 those moments of temptation to look at sexually explicit media come up, don't be like Israel. Remember what they did. Remember what happened to them. When those moments of, of temptation to engage in sexual activity with someone not your spouse, when that, whole, that old high school flame reaches out on social media, or, or when a coworker who's not your spouse makes a pass at you, remember what Israel did in the wilderness and what happened to them. When you're feeling unhappy with aspects of your work life or your home life or you're unhappy with church leadership or governing authorities or or whatever it is and you're tempted to discontentment and grumbling, remember Israel in the wilderness. Remember what happened to them. These things were written down for our example. But if the temptation and failure of Israel was written down for your example How much more Jesus' temptation and faithfulness. Whereas Israel's failure was written down for us as an example by way of contrast, Jesus' faithfulness was written down as an example to copy. Whereas Israel's failure is to be a photo negative of what we're called to, Jesus' faithfulness is to be a template of what we're called to. And while we don't find a ton of specifics, in Mark 1, 12-13, we do find a bit more uh, detail of Jesus' temptation response. If you look at Matthew 4, 1-11, and Luke 4, 1-13, there we find Jesus respond to particular temptations from Satan with the rightly interpreted word of God. Satan comes to him when he's fasting and he's weak during those 40 days, saying, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. And to this, Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Satan comes to him again, and he says to him that he'll give him authority and power if Jesus will only bow down and worship Satan. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan comes to Jesus, and he tempts him to, to throw himself off of the temple, since God won't let him be harmed, of course. Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you notice a pattern here? It is written, it is written, it is written. Friends, when Satan in the world, in the flesh, comes to you hard with temptation, this is how we're to respond. It is written. When those moments of temptation to sexual immorality comes, don't be like Israel. Be like Jesus. And respond, it is written, flee from sexual immorality, for you have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 20. When when temptation comes to grumble and complain and be discontent, don't be like Israel and give in to grumbling and discontentment. Be like Jesus and say, it is written, be content with what you have, for I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Memorize the word of God, bring it to mind and mouth in those moments in the wilderness. When those times in the wilderness come, these things were written down for our example. Follow the example of Jesus and not that of Israel. 
But then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness not only corresponds to Israel's, it also corresponds to an even older story. Look with me next at Jesus' temptation in Adam. Look at verse 13 again. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, um, that probably seems strange, right? Uh, and, and Mark's condensed account of this event, so, like he's not got a ton of space, and yet he includes that. Why? He obviously thinks that's important. Why is that important to Mark? That, that Jesus was with the wild animals. He's not wasting any words. Why is that detail important? I actually think there's more than one correct answer to this. But, but chief among the correct answers would have to be that Mark is trying to draw our attention back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the temptation and failure of our greatest grandparents, Adam and Eve. It, it, Israel was not the only temptation and failure that Mark was hearkening back to here. He's hearkening back to Adam and his temptation and failure in the Garden of Eden. But what's more is that Mark seems to be highlighting the, 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 the greater difficulty that Jesus faced in his temptation. So notice, Adam was in a peaceful garden. No curse yet invading our world. He's in a garden. He's not in a wilderness. And he's with tame animals, not wild beasts. Adam is there as God's representative in Eden, called to exercise dominion over a world wherein there's no sin, no suffering, no curse, no thorns, no thistles, no wildness. Adam is called to exercise dominion as a petting zoo attendant, but Jesus is here as Steve Irwin. Like, he's hardcore. He's going through a much greater test and difficulty here. And yet, instead of ruling over the peaceful garden and tame animals, Adam fails. Instead of, Adam lets an animal, a creeping thing, a serpent, exercise dominion over him. Adam sins. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned and fell with him because he's our federal head. He's the federal head of humanity. So ever since Adam sinned and fell, we're all born guilty and in sin. We all are born with a nature corrupt and prone to sin. And we all actually sin as soon as we're actually capable of it. But Jesus, as the second Adam, as the new parental head of humanity, of the new humanity, instead of falling short in the face of temptation, he is faithful. And the fact that Mark is hearkening back to Adam here is further confirmed by this last little bit here in Mark 1.13, when Mark writes that the angels were ministering to him. So the angels had come to, to serve and assist Jesus. This is the actual word is the word that we get deacon from. They were coming to deacon Jesus. They were deaconing Jesus. They were serving him. And they come to do this in his hour of testing and temptation. And it's evident here that Mark has a a particular passage in mind in the Old Testament that connects, serves as a connector between the, the, uh, the Genesis account there and Jesus' temptation here. Psalm 91, 11 through 13, where we see angels ministering and wild animals. There the psalmist writes about the coming Messiah, saying, For he, that's God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So God will send these angels to minister to you so that you will not falter, God says to the Messiah. And listen, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. In other words, God has told the coming Messiah, my angels will minister to you and you will trample the wild animals underfoot. Which, of course, is a reference to Satan. You remember back in Genesis 3, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, when God promises to send the victorious Messiah, he says that the serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel, reference to the crucifixion but that the Messiah will crush the head of the serpent underfoot. And this promise is reiterated in Psalm 91.13. And here in Mark, we find Jesus being victorious in the face of Satan's schemes and remaining faithful as the new representative of God's people. So you can see here, Mark is, is not only putting forth Jesus as our example, but as our Savior. This is why he's hearkening back to Genesis 3 and Adam's failure. Mark is showing us that while sin came into the world by Adam's disobedience, salvation has come into the world by Jesus' obedience. In Romans 5.9, Paul says this. He says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Here's the thing. Jesus most certainly has come into the world to be our example. So he has, he has shown us what a, what a righteous life of obedience looks like. He has called us to follow him and to mimic him in it. And yet if that's all that Jesus has done, we are hopelessly lost. We are hopelessly lost. Because we already haven't followed the example of Jesus. We have already fallen short of his righteousness, and we will do so again in the future. And so we not only need his example, we need his salvation, we need his righteousness, we need his justification. And I want you to see here that his faithfulness in the midst of this temptation is essential for that salvation and justification to be given. So normally for most of us, when we think of Christ's work of salvation, we're prone to think of his death Hopefully his resurrection, and obviously that's right, that's the emphasis. But have you ever thought about the importance of Christ's righteousness and his obedient life and how it relates to your salvation and justification? Have you ever thought about how how the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account in justification is the righteousness that he achieved in living a life of faithfulness and obedience during his 33 years here on this earth? The the, the righteousness that he grants to us in our justification is the righteousness that he achieved when he withstood the temptation of Satan in the wilderness for those 40 days. Without his faithfulness and righteousness in the face of Satan's temptations, there would be no righteousness to grant us. The cross would have been powerless. Christ's atonement would have had no value, but his cross, my friends, was not an empty word. It possesses redeeming value, all because Jesus was faithful in the face of temptation for us and was victorious over Satan in the wilderness for those 40 days. And now because of this, in, in, 
in those times of life wherein you fail in the face of temptation, where you have failed, in those times in the future where, where you will fail again, in those times and moments wherein you fall short of Christ's glorious example, which inevitably come and have already come, the story is not over for you, my friend. In those times in life wherein we look more like Adam or Israel more than we do Jesus, the second Adam and the true Israel, all is not lost because we have a Savior who was tempted in the wilderness for us. We have a Savior who is faithful on our behalf. We have a Savior who went to the cross as the faithful one to bear the penalty for our failings. And so now when we come to him, and we confess our sins and failures in the face of temptation, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and failures and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Friends, you can be made clean. Your conscience can be washed clean of your past failings. You can be forgiven and declared righteous by God himself, all because Jesus was faithful where you and Adam have failed. But then not only do we want to consider Jesus' temptation in Israel and Adam, we also want to consider Jesus' temptation in us. Jesus' temptation and faithfulness would have been an encouragement to Mark's first century audience. So remember, his most immediate audience was the church in Rome. and They were requesting that he write down this account from Peter's eyewitness stories, and, and remember they were facing a, a, a fierce and intense time of persecution in Rome. The Roman authorities were demanding that they not worship the one true God, but that they renounce him and worship Roman idols instead, which is precisely what Satan tempted Jesus to do here. Satan was launching an onslaught and attack of temptation against the church there, similar to his attack against Jesus in the wilderness. And what's more is if that they remain faithful and devoted to Christ, they would be tossed to wild animals in the likes of the Colosseum. So you can see how Jesus being tempted here amongst the wild animals in the wilderness would have likely caught the attention of this first century audience. They would have been comforted by the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted just like them and was among the wild animals just like them and yet remain faithful, and we can draw comfort from that same reality. I mean, to think, the Son of God would humble himself to the point of letting himself be tempted for our sake. You, you, you probably know this, but it is impossible for God to be tempted in his deity, James 1.13 tells us. He can't be tempted. He's, he's too pure too holy, too strong, and, and, and think about the kindness of the Son of God then to come and to take on flesh and to take on our humanity and to humble himself of being, to the point of being tempted for us and in our place. This is astounding. I don't know if you remember what this was like when you were, in, you know, when you were younger and, and in elementary school or whatever, and like when a, a teacher would come out during recess and they would join the class in playing a game, playing kickball or horse or something. I remember um, Mr. Shevitz in our fourth grade class, when he came out during recess a few times and he would play horse 
with us. I beat him one time. I uh, just had to throw that in there. And um, it was such a big deal. You know, here's the, the teacher, and he's, he's condescending to us, coming down on our level, doing something that, that makes him seem out of place almost. And, uh, you know, you, you parents, your, your kids might experience this. When, when you get on the floor and play Legos with them, it's such a big deal. Dad or mom who's got all of these adult responsibilities and important tasks to, to do to, to provide and to, to, to keep a household and all of this, and yet they condescend to their children in such a kind and humble way. Well, this is like that, but a million times more. The Son of God Stepping into our humanity, stepping into the, the full human experience, suffering like us, being tempted like us, it seems so out of place. To be frank, it, it almost feels inappropriate to even say that such a thing has happened if it wasn't for the word of God saying that it happened. This is a scandalous, astounding thing. It's also a comforting thing to know that you worship a God-man who knows what it is to be tempted, who has lived through the, the wilderness of this life, who knows your human frailty. This is astounding and comforting. There's nothing like this anywhere else. And the author of Hebrews, he picks up on this reality from Jesus' temptation and he talks about this in Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. Dane Ortland says that this text is like a stethoscope placed right over the heart of Christ as it beats for his people. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, because Christ has been tempted as we are in every way, we have a God who is able to sympathize. We have a high priest seated in the throne room of heaven who knows what it is to be tempted and therefore sympathizes with us. That's astounding. What does it mean that he sympathizes with us? It means that he's able to identify with us as his people in our weaknesses and in our temptations. Dan Ortland says that the writer to the Hebrews is taking us by the hand and leading us deep into the heart of Christ showing us the unrestrained witness of Jesus regarding his people. When the fallenness of this world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. In other words, my friends, because Christ was tempted, even in your weakness, even when you're tempted, maybe we should say, especially in your weakness and temptation, the heart of Christ is throbbing for you. He is eager to be gracious to you, to come to your aid. He is longing to give you mercy and help. And for that reason, in those moments of difficulty and temptation, when we're walking through the wildernesses of our lives, 
we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help. Because Christ was tempted, we can draw near with boldness even, without a whiff of hesitation or tentativeness or trepidation. We can draw near and we can find mercy for our past failings and help for our present temptations. Because he was faithful on our behalf, we find a sympathetic high priest who has mercy on our past failings. And because he was tempted on our behalf, he offers present help to follow his example. My friends, I know that in these moments, in the wildernesses of life, when those times of testing come, and difficulty come, and battling come, and temptations come, those are the moments even in those moments where you've already given in to temptation. Your conscience condemns you. Satan lies to you. Those are the moments where you feel like you're most alone, like Christ is furthest away. You feel so isolated, alone, most helpless. Mark 1, 12 and 13 is showing you that you're not. Because Christ has already been there for you, and because he's already been there for you, he is also there for you now if you draw near to him. That's why this would have been so encouraging to Mark's first century audience. And that's why this is encouraging to us now. My friends, Jesus was tempted and faithful for us. And here he is offered as our example, but more he is lauded as our victorious Savior and as our sympathetic high priest. He is all of this and more for us. And thus, Mark 1, 12 and 13 gives us every reason when we're in the wildernesses of life to look to him, to trust in him, to draw near to him in our sufferings and sins and our temptings and temptations and testings. We can draw near to our sympathetic, sympathetic high priest and find mercy for our past failings and present help in the face of temptation. He is enough for us in this way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wilderness journey of Jesus here in Mark 1, 12-13. We thank you that he was tempted for us. But moreover, we thank you that he was faithful for us because we have failed time and time and time again and we will fail again in the future. And so we need his salvation and we need his forgiveness. We also ask for for the wisdom and the grace and the knowledge in those wilderness moments, in those temptations in life, in those testings. Help us to have the wisdom to draw near and to receive mercy and grace and help in time of need. Give us strength thereby to follow Jesus' example and not that of Israel. Lord, make much of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to be faithful representatives of him and help us to be dependent upon him always because he's the faithful one. He's the excellent one. Help us to look to him. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, my friends. When we move from the ministry of the word to the ministry of the table here, and we're reminded as we do so of what we've already been hearing about. And that's that 
Jesus was faithful for us. He was obedient to the Father even when it took him to the cross. When he met with Satan again in the garden, when he met with temptation in the garden, and yet he told the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross, and his body was broken, and his blood was shed, so that we would be forgiven and set free from our guilt and condemnation and the power of sin. And then he rose on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit. And because of this, we're not only remembering Jesus' death, his broken body, and his shed blood, but we're also experiencing a present communion with him. As we partake of this meal, we remember that Israel partook of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament as they ate the the mysterious bread, manna, and they drank from the, the water that came from the rock, and the rock was Christ. Well, here we are participating somehow spiritually in the body and blood of the Lord because Jesus was hit just like that rock, and blood and water came forth from his body just like that rock in the Old Testament. And then not only that, but we're also looking forward to a day when the battle is won and there's no longer any temptation. We're we're called to receive this meal and, and to partake of this meal until the Lord comes, when we will eat this meal with him face to face in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so with that, this meal is a meal of remembrance, it's a meal of communion, and it's a meal of hope. It's a meal wherein we look back, wherein we experience the present presence of Christ now and where we look forward to his coming again to set us free from the wilderness of life as a whole. And so if that's not your story, if you haven't been baptized in confirmation of your faith in Christ and identification with that story, we we ask that you not receive this meal, but that you receive Christ. Would you consider him this morning? Consider what you've heard about his salvation, about your conscience being washed clean and you're being saved forever because of the person and work of Jesus. And would you take Christ, not this meal, take Christ. If you have any questions, we'd love to talk with you afterward. We'd love to pray with you. Come to Veritas in 10. We'd love to chat with you there. But don't take this meal. For those of you who, however, have followed Jesus into the waters of baptism and and professed faith in his name through baptism and and called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, we invite you to receive this meal. Receive this meal as a confirmation that Jesus was faithful for you and obedient for you and thus is your salvation, is your righteousness, is your justification. And the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before we partake of the elements, let's take a moment to say the Lord's prayer together. One heart and one voice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
friends, the body of Christ, which is broken for you. Take, eat, and be thankful. Likewise, the blood of Christ, which is shed for you. Take, drink, and be thankful. stand and sing together. in power.
Amen. Just a couple announcements for us as we prepare to go. We have a Veritas in 10 directly after the service. So if you're visiting with us today or if you've been visiting with us for a while, we'd love for you to head downstairs into the dining room. The pastors would love to meet you. They'd love to tell you just a little bit more in 10 minutes about what our church does outside of Sunday mornings and to give you a chance to ask any questions that you might have about our church or how you can learn more, get connected more. So that's immediately after the service, after the benediction, you can head downstairs to meet the pastors. The rest of us are going to wait for Colin and Josiah to come dismiss us by row. Lastly, we end with a benediction. If you want to put your hand in the air to receive it, you can do so now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Peace be with you.